I, I love that there's original music being done here. Don't you just love that, that God is like gifting people and that we get to experience the gifts of people and share, they get to share our, their gifts with us of songwriting and music. And, and I just, that's one of the things I love about this place is that we get to hear original worship music. Um, a lot of places are just doing what everybody else is doing, but we got to hear some, some, some new stuff today. So thank you guys. Thank the team for doing that. Um, <clears throat> just a reminder, it's Valentine's Day this week. Did you know that? Did everybody know, knew that, right? Because I said that early service and everybody kind of like, oh, I forgot, right? So I've been married for a few years now. And I thought to myself, you know, it's, I said to my wife, do we really need to keep doing Valentine's Day? Like, you know, why do we need to keep dealing, giving chocolates to remember the martyrdom of a saint in the third century? Why, why is this that we're still doing this? And so I said, you know, can we just like skip Valentine's Day this year? In fact, since I'm the head of the household, let me issue this decree that we are not celebrating Valentine's Day anymore. You know what my wife's response was? No. <laughs> it's not going to happen. And then we actually started, because I was obviously teasing her about this, but we were teasing and then we got in a discussion, you know, like, even though we've been married a long time, it's still important for us to be in relationship together. It's still important for us to date, even though the kids are gone, you know, they're at a house, they're in college. It's still important for us to continue to build our relationship throughout the years of our marriage. You don't just put your relationship on hold, right? And so we talked about that, but there's this kind of... So as I listened to my wife unpack this, I was like, you know, she's a wise woman. I married a wise woman, right? And I think about this too, like we're going to look into a text today from Ephesians, which is sometimes controversial because it talks about wives submitting to their husbands. But in that scenario I just shared with you, I was actually su submitting to my wife. I was actually submitting to her wisdom. And it takes, think, I want you to think about this morning. It's like, what's our authority based on in our relationships? Is it based on power? Or is it based on something else? Is it based on wisdom? Is it based on love? Is it based on uh, something else? What is our, where do we see the root or the foundation of our authority in relationships? And so we're going to unpack this a little bit and we're going to look at Paul today. I would say this about Paul. He's writing to a time period where marriage was sometimes arranged when marriage was sometimes put together politically or economically. And so Valentine's Day, they didn't celebrate Valentine's Day when Paul wrote this, by the way. So there was not, the romantic love aspect wasn't always there in the family structure. So he's speaking into a family structure that is what we would call patriarchal or father or husband-led. And so the male was the head of the household and women and children were kind of under them almost in a, an authoritarian type of relationship, a hierarchical relationship, because they were very dependent upon that male headship for a lot of things in an agrarian society and so forth. And so you have to keep in mind that Paul is writing to this patriarchal struct family structure. Now, our family looks a lot different today. In fact, uh, I don't see this lived out a whole lot, this type of what we see in the first century. But we're, we live in a more egalitarian family structure. We also have different family structures. We have single parents. We have foster parents. We have blended families. And so we have all these different structures. And our family today looks different than the family that Paul was writing into. So I'm just going to put that out there as you listen to this so that you can understand it in the context. And I would suggest to you that as we look at some of this text today, Paul's goal is not to change the family structure. That's not his goal. 
His goal is to say, what does it look like to bring out the image of God in your family? Because that's our series. What do we look, what's the image of God look like? And what does it look like for our families? We, a week, uh, first week, we talked about how we're all creating the image of God. Men and women are all creating the image of God. Week two, we talked about how the Holy Spirit helps us live out that image in our relationships. And today, we're going to look at that again today. But let's jump right in. We're in chapter five of Ephesians. If you want to look in the Bible, uh, you can turn to that. Otherwise, it's going to be on the screen for you. You can pull out your phone, look on your phone, follow it on your phone. We're looking at Ephesians chapter five, 18 to 21. And if you're on your phone, you want to pick the, ver- the one that says C-E-B by it. That's a version, and you can go to your phone app, go to this passage, put Ephesians 5, and then look for C-E-B, or C-E-B and then go to Ephesians 5. So here it is. I want you to notice the, what Paul says first. He says, be filled with the Spirit in the following ways. Speak to each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Sing and make music to the Lord in your hearts. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to each other out of respect for Christ. So I want you to get the content. Like, see, this is what Paul's starting off. And he actually starts off the whole passage saying to everybody, live wisely. And here's how you can live wisely. Be filled with the Spirit. And then as you're filled with the Spirit, sing to each other as you relate to each other, Right? Literally, when he says give thanks, he's, he's actually saying sing grace to one another. Like give grace to one another. Think about that. What would that look like in our relationships to do that, right? And then he says submit to each other out of reverence, out of respect for Christ. So I want you to understand that this, I, there's an idea here that Paul is putting forth called mutual submission. Mutual submission, all right? So we're going to look at this series today. And about you have the family. And I've broken it into basically two parts. We want to talk to, to marriage a little bit, and we want to talk to parents, parenting. And so if you're here and you're single or you're in a different type of relationship, I know this is kind of more the traditional family structure we're speaking into. But I would say to you, if you, if you no matter where you're at, whatever, whatever family structure you're in right now, these things, there are some things here in this passage that would, can apply to your life and to your relationships, your family relationships today. So you may have to filter it a little bit into your own family structure, but I think the truths here of the scripture are good. So first of all, let's talk about wise partnering. Uh, Wise partnering. So Paul is saying it's good to be in partnership with one another, wives and husbands coming together, and that we do this out of respect for one another, love and respect for one another. And then Paul actually jumps ahead. I'm going to jump ahead. We're going to come back. But chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, verse 33, he says this, In any case, as for you individually, each one of you should love his wife as himself, and wives should respect their husbands. So, you get this? I just want to point this out. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's how he he gets into this. Then he talks about marriage, husbands and wives. And then he wraps it up and he ends with this statement. In, In any case, as for you individually, each one of you should love his wife as himself, and wives should respect their husbands. Again, he's saying this is what mutual submission looks like. Love and respect is what mutual submission looks like. But it's all within this context, with all within this concept of mutual submission. So then he goes on, and here's where we're going to jump into the text today. For example, wives should submit to their husbands as if to the Lord. A husband is the head of his wife, like Christ is the head of the church, that is the savior of the body. 
So wives submit to their husbands and everything like the church submits to Christ. As for husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, this first part, I've heard a lot of sermons on this first part about wives submit to your husbands. And I'm not a wife. So I went to my wife and I said, what do you have to say about this? And she declined to comment. <laughs> so we're going to jump ahead. Um, because... <laughs> Because really, most of this is speaking to husbands. As we look at this whole path, there's three times as much material here speaking to how husbands love their wives than the one verse, wives submit to your husbands. So we think about it. So what is Paul doing here? Again, he's speaking to the male heads of households here. And he's saying to them, here's what I am calling you to do, and that is love your wife. Because in that society... Paul was saying in these, these heads of households, they would have possibly seen their wives and their children as possessions and objects and dependents, right? And we don't live in, a, in, a, in, a, in an economic situation where we're dependent on each other that way. So in that time period, they were, children and women were economically dependent upon the head of the household. And so they, their lives, a widow and an orphan would have been destitute in this culture. So we have to keep that in mind. So I want you to notice something, though. So Paul's speaking to this kind of authoritarian concept, and he's saying to the husbands, I want you guys to stop looking at your wives and your children as objects and possessions and dependents. I actually want you to look at them differently. And that's where he goes on and says, I want you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So then we have to ask ourselves the question, how did Christ love the church? And that's where Paul goes on and he says this in verses 26 to 30. He did this to make her holy by washing her in a bath of water with the word. He did this to present himself with a splendid church, one without any sort of stain or wrinkle on her clothes, but rather one that is holy and blameless. That's how husbands ought to love their wives. In the same way as they do their own bodies, Anyone who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hates his own body, but feeds it and takes care of it, just like Christ does for the church, because we are parts of his body. So what Paul is saying is, guys, husbands, shift your attitude to your wife. Shift that. And then what does love look like? Well, what would they have known? Philippians chapter 2. What, how did Christ love us in Philippians chapter 2? He made himself nothing. What about this idea of agape love, which is the same type of agape love used here? Agape love in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, what does it say? Love does not demand its own way. What does it say about how Christ loved the church in John chapter 15? He laid down his life for his friends. And our spouses are more than our friends. So if we'll do that for our friends, we ought to do that for our spouses in mutual submission. So think about that. That's what, it lo that's what love looks like from Christ. That's what Christ did to love the church. And so if we're to love the same way, notice that our power or authority is not based on any type of power structure or hierarchical structure. It's based on the way we love and the way we serve and the way we humble ourselves like Christ did. 
So he's actually shifting male headship to more of a responsible servant leadership headship. He's saying, I want you to stop asserting yourself and start serving the people around you. Start being about self-sacrifice for your wives and your children. Do these things. Love this way with an agape type of love. Did anybody see um, Super Bowl commercials last week, by the way? Super Bowl, right? And in the Super Bowl commercials, did you see the one about the Greek words for love? Did anybody see that one? I thought, this has got to be for a church, right? It's not. It was for an insurance company. I was like, what? You know, now the insurance company is stealing our material, right? And um, so I was thinking about that. And, I, and they talk about this agape, which I thought, you know, this is great. Now the whole world knows about these Greek words for love. And the word here used in the passage for love is agape, unconditional, unwavering, saying, I'm going to stick with you no matter what. And just as Christ stuck with us, even when we weren't perfect, even when we didn't get it right, he stayed steadfast towards us. So I would suggest to you that we're responsible leaders. We're servant leaders. Now, it took me a while to figure this out, by the way. And I have permission to share this story, by the way, because actually it's all my fault anyway. Um, <laughs> But, you know, when you first go into marriage, you know, you think it's going to be Valentine's Day every day. Did you ever think that, right? So if you're here dating, uh, by the way, let me just, just, just pay attention. All right, so you think it's Valentine's Day, right, every day. And you're going to get married, and it's always going to be Valentine's Day, and it's going to be so wonderful, and it's going to be great. And then, you know, as you get married, a couple years, year or two into marriage, you start to go, this thing called reality starts to set in. And you start to realize that you're now committed your life to a person who's not perfect. And I'm speaking of myself only here, right? Yeah. I love Dr. Norman Wright, and I've mentioned this before. Dr. Norman Wright defines marriage this way. It's an unconditional commitment, agape, to an imperfect person. Unconditional commitment to an imperfect person. So what happens in marriage is that, and it's not a bad thing. By the way, everybody thinks, oh, being married a long time, oh, you guys, you know. No, this is not a bad thing. What I'm telling you is a good thing. It just sounds bad right now. But here's what I say. Keep, stay with me. So you start, the reality starts to set in and you start to go, this person is not who I thought they were. This person is not acting the way I thought they were going to act. They're doing things that I don't think they should be doing, or at least not the way that I would do them, right? And so this reality starts to set in. And then this other thought takes over your relationship and you start to think to yourself, I'll just change them. I'll fix them, right? If I do some things, if I shift some things around, if I start pointing out some flaws, and then maybe if I point out their flaws, that will help them know, and they'll change. How many people have tried that? <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work. But I thought, you know, well, maybe if I do this, you know, then. So this went on for a few years, me trying to, like, fix and change and do these things and live to get my spouse, my wife to live up to my expectations. And then it was about year seven. It was pizza night. I'll never forget. Friday night, pizza night. And uh, we were in that we were having a conversation over dinner. The kids, uh, grandparents, I think, had the kids. So we were having a date night and our discussion got a little bit heated. But you don't want to have a heated discussion in front of strangers. So we move out onto the sidewalk outside the restaurant and I still remember the place. I remember the pizza place. I remember everything about it. And, 
And we're standing on the sidewalk and we're getting now into this conversation. We're not yelling and screaming. I don't believe in all that stuff. But we start to have this really heated discussion and, and we're in this on the sidewalk and I finally, you know, have you ever said something and you wish you could just like take it back, right? And so these words came out of my mouth. I'm, I'm just being honest. We, we talk about living honestly here. I say to my wife, I'm done trying to change you. I, can you believe I actually said that? I said it out loud. And as soon as I said it out loud, I kind of wanted to go, can we get that back in? Because then I realized at that moment, that's exactly what I've been trying to do. I've been trying to change this person to create her in the image I have for her, right? Not in God's image. And she had a beautiful response to this when I said, I'm done trying to change you. You know what she said? Good, it's about time. <laughs> And when she said that, I was like, oh, again, what are we basing our authority on? <laughs> I didn't assert my authority. I just was reminded again that, she had, that that's, I was learning some wisdom, right? And I needed to heed wisdom because I'm supposed to live wisely. And am I supposed to listen to the Holy Spirit as I live in relationship with my wife? And so it's at that moment that I began to see things differently. And here's how I began to see things differently. It was my aha moment. Here's what I did. I needed to stop trying to get my wife to be who I wanted her to be. And I needed to do everything I could to encourage her and affirm her to be the person that God created her to be. Not who I wanted her to be. I needed to do things to help the image of God come out in her. And I would say, wives, it's true for you too. <laughs> I think wives, your job also is to bring out the image of God in your husband to encourage and to affirm and to say, how can I encourage the image of God to come out of you and to be a part of your life? I want you to be who God created you to be in the image of God by the work of the Holy Spirit. That's God's hope for our relationships and our families. It's true for children too. Notice that that's actually what he said. You know, Paul said, that Christ wanted to make this, provide, present this splendid church, right? And I think we're right back to the image of God, that we, our hope for each other, spouses, is really to be the image of God and to be the people God creates to be. How do we encourage, support, and love that way? Agape, right? Mutual submission, love and respect brings out the image of God in our families. And it also applies to our children, Paul goes on and he writes to parents at the end of this. And he says, you know, <clears throat> I want you to raise your children in the Lord, about the Lord. I think this is impl implying again, raise them so that they live out the image of God within them. So what is the image of God in your children? Uh, I would say even someone asked me this morning, what about grandparents? Well, okay, good. What does that look like as grandparents to bring out the image of God in your children, in your grandchildren, right? Same, same principle applies here. And so we think about that, but most of our parenting today is really, I, and I'm making an assumption here, I realize, but I think what I see a lot of today, and even I'm guilty of as a parent, is skill-based, talent-based parenting. Like, I want my kid to be great at something. 
I want them to have this talent so they can make it in the world, right? And so we tend to think about these talents we want to develop. And these are all good things. You know, we want them to be great academically or great at a sport or great at an instrument or great at uh, whatever their talent is. And so we, we encourage this talent. To, and it's nothing's wrong with that, by the way. So I want my kids to play sports. I want my kids to, to have gifts and art and be artistic and, art, and share their gifts and their talents with the world. But I think sometimes we overcompensate for that. We overstress that to the point where we've forgotten that actually our job as parents is to bring out the image of God in our children, to actually help them be really great people who love and care and think of others. You see what I'm saying? So that there's these other character traits that we want to nurture and to bring out that have to do with the image of God. And notice that Paul, again, and actually we don't see it in the text here, but he's actually specifically in the Greek, and if we were to go look at the Greek, he's specifically, again, speaking to children and fathers. And he says this, As for children, obey your parents in the Lord, because it is right. The commandment, honor your father and mother, is the first one with a promise attached, so that things will go well for you, and you will live for a long time in the land. As for parents... Greek says fathers, as for parents, don't provoke your children to anger, but raise them with discipline and instruction about the Lord. Help them know the Lord and help them live out who God created them to be in the Lord. So that's our role as parents here according to chapter 6. Now, Paul's actually said this before all the research but if you look at the parenting research over the past 50, 60 years, I don't think much has changed on this from what I can tell. But there's like this need for young people to have both demands and support placed on them together. Love and discipline together. Because it's not one or the other. Because sometimes we tend to sway one way or the other as parents. But we need a balance of both demands and support. Uh, I recently read a book called Grit. If you're familiar with it, it's a great book about how to instill determination and grit, not only in your own life, but in your children's life. They do a whole chapter on parenting. And out of that chapter, uh, Angela Duckworth uh, shares this graph, graphic. And uh, we've got a, a copy of it here. And so she talks about these different styles of parenting. And on the one, uh, the vertical axis, you can see supportive and unsupportive. And on the horizontal axis, you can see undemanding and demanding. And if you look in the left corner, you'll see something called neglectful parenting. That means that this parenting style, that there's no demands placed on children and there's no support given to children. And this be creates an emotionally toxic environment and these children will not thrive in this type of parenting style. And it's been borne out by research over the years that this is just not uh, a good parenting style to just, just be undemanding and no support at all. It's basically like it's just being absentee, right? You're just not even involved. And so we see some of that, unfortunately, today, but that's not good. Now, if you shift over to the right, you see what's called authoritarian parenting. This is where there's a lot of demands placed on the child, but there's no support given to meet the demand. So you've got this great demand or expectation, but there's no support to help the child who's not mature enough and needs support and needs love and needs care to meet those demands, but you're not giving them any support. This is where I think Paul's word to parents is this. Parent Paul says this, don't provoke your children to anger, right? Don't place high demands on them, but don't give them any support and love and care to do, meet those demands. That's just going to create resentment and bitterness in our children. That's actually what Paul's talking about. He's ta again, notice he's talking about authoritarian style of parenting. 
uh, and he had been talking about to an authoritarian style of, of, of marriage as well. So here again, he's saying that. So this is the best example I have of this is like, if you're a parent, you want your kid to learn how to swim. So you go throw them in the deep end of the pool and say, go figure it out. All demand, no support, right? That's authoritarian parenting style. That doesn't work either. And the other thing that I think, because we have a history of authoritarian parenting in our culture, we've actually, I think, in the past 20 years shifted. And what I've seen more of today is what I would call permissive parenting. And that is where there's all this support, but no demands, no structure, no discipline, right? You get to do whatever you want to do, no matter how old you are. And so there's no, uh, there's nothing there to, to like put any kind of like, hey, I expect you to be an adult. I expect you to grow. I expect you to mature. It's just all permission giving, right? And we see that as well in, in many forms. And I see that re, uh, occasionally when I'm, you know, out and about now and I'll see, you know, a parent, you know, down on their knees with their three-year-old and negotiating, right? Like, well, you know, no, you can't have that piece of candy, well, maybe you could. Well, maybe, I don't know, you know. So there's this negotiation going on. And so what's happening is that I sit there and I watch this little scenario go on and I go, who's the parent? Who's in charge here? Who, who sets the expectation and gives the support when the, so when the no happens? But I know what's going on, right? I know every, what's going on with this is they're afraid, right? The parent is deathly afraid. What are they afraid of? A tantrum, Right? But here's my, here's my uh, rule on three-year-olds. I do not negotiate with terrorists. <laughs> three-year-olds are all demand, right? They want everything. They want it their way and everything. And it's our job as parents to say, wait a second. Let's put some structure. Let's put some boundaries on this. I am the parent, and I've been put in place in your life to love you and also help you to mature. And so sometimes that requires me to be both demanding and supportive at the same time and not just all permission giving. And then wise parenting. Wise parenting is the good balance, the great balance. And this is where the research proves again and again and again that both supportive parenting with demanding parenting, going together, placing demands, boundaries, discipline on on children, setting goals for them, and then giving them the support to get there is what works. Paul's saying the same thing. Paul said it in the first century. We have to go to our researchers to remind us of this, right? But the bottom line is, in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting styles, or even if you're thinking about, hey, I'm not in that situation in my life, but what would it look like future? Whatever your family looks like today, think about this. What would it look like for me to encourage and love the people in my family towards the image of God? What would that look like? What does it look like for me to help those around me become the people God created them to be, whether it be my spouse or be my children or my grandchildren or my parents even? Sometimes we have to parent up, by the way, those sandwich people here. So think about that. What does it look like to bring out the image of God? And I'll, and I'll share this one last story with you that kind of bears some of this out. So I'm going to tell you about a guy. His name is Victor. Victor was the son. He was born a month after his father passed away. So he was raised by a single mom. And Victor was, uh, when he was first born, the people around his mom uh, just threw lots of support for her. She, they just said, 
you know, you're going to need a lot of support. So the town people around her, neighbors, and they just gave her a lot of support. They would help with groceries. They would help with diapers. They, they gave uh, baby clothes to her. They gave crib and all these things. They just kind of did as much as they could to shower her with support. And it was wonderful. As a single mom, she needed all the help she could get. But then one day after kind of support died down, there was a knock on the door and she opens the door and there was an older gentleman. His name was Doc Burns. Now, Doc Burns was the kind of town recluse. You know, he was the guy that kind of kept to himself, but retired doctor that nobody really talked to, but would maybe wave high on the street. But nobody really knew Doc Burns, but they knew of Doc Burns. And so Doc Burns came and says, I I have something I want to give your your son. And the mom said, "Uh, well, sure, you know, thank you. What, What is it? And he's like, I can give your son one wish and only one wish. Uh, So I want you to think about what's the one thing you would want for your son and uh, I'll come back in a week and and then I'll talk to you and we'll grant you this wish. So he left. She comes back. She thinks about, you know, is this really, is this real? Is this, you know, she's skeptical, cynical, but then so she's thinking about what, what would be my greatest wish for my son? So the next week comes around, Doc Burns comes back to the house says, what would you, what's your, what's your one wish for your son? And she says, I wish that everybody would love my son. And he said, consider it done. And he left. And as Victor grew up, everybody loved him. Everybody wanted to be around him. Everybody wanted to hang out with Victor. Everybody just loved this guy. He was handsome. He was smart. He did all these wonderful, he, he was just this wonderful person everybody was attracted to, naturally gravitated to. This went into high school and, uh, you know, he always had a date to the prom and then he goes off to college. He comes back. He's got a new car, new designer clothes, uh, and he's got all these, uh, parties he's going to every night. He's not even seeing his mom anymore because every night he's home, he's going to another party because he gets invited because people want him at his party. And he is just loved by everybody. And so this goes on for a while. And he he's, then goes into adulthood and everybody gives him everything. And he really doesn't have to work because all the people around him are constantly taking care of him, providing for him. And he starts to take advantage of their generosity. And so he has all these things. He collects horses and he collects cars and he collects girlfriends. But he notices that no matter how much people love him, he still feels empty on the inside. And he begins to feel more and more empty as he goes through life. And he realizes that even though all this love is showered upon him, he feels empty at the soul of his soul. And he can't understand what's going on. And so finally, he actually begins to become disgusted with the people who are showering their love on him. And he decides to end his life. And just as he's about to do that, there's a knock on the door. And he opens the door, and there's Doc Burns. And Doc Burns enters in and knows what's going on, and he says, I'm sorry, I am partly responsible for what's happening to you. So I'm going to give you one more wish. What do you wish for? What's the one thing that you would wish for right now? And Victor looked at him and says, I got everything. I don't, have, I don't have any way. All my wishes have been fulfilled. And Doc Burns said, well, think, think harder. And finally, Victor said to him, I wish I had the ability to love others. Take away other people's love for me and replace it with an ability to love the people around me. Doc Burns said, consider it done. He left the house All of a sudden, Victor's friends started to not hang out anymore. (laughs) 
They started to disappear. They didn't want to be around him. He had some unpaid debts that he had never paid for. And so people started to call the debts that he had to them. He actually ended up in prison for those debts and for some other things that he had done that finally people were holding him accountable to. After he got out of prison, he didn't have a job. He didn't have any money. He lost all his possessions. But he noticed that in the town where he grew up, there was a need for a custodian in the school. So he applied for the job to be the custodian in the local elementary school. And as he would clean the floors and clean the building and lock it up and shut it down, he would also see young children in need. And he would find ways to meet those needs and care for them and love them. And all the kids in the school knew him as Mr. Victor. They liked him. They enjoyed him being around because he was always looking for ways to care for them. And then one day he met a widow two sons, and they got married. And they lived a life, full life, even though they were not economically wealthy, even though they didn't have it all, he continued to be a custodian, but now he had a family that he was able to pour his love into, and kids in a school that he was able to pour his love into. And he was probably the happiest man in the world. That's what it looks like to live out the image of God to love those around us as servants with sacrificial love, to love those that God has put in our lives. Let's pray together.